Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word. Help us to understand it. Let your spirit be with us as we discuss this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 11. <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear you the words of the covenant, and speak unto the men of Judah and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say you unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeys not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in, in the day which I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron, uh, iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do them according to all that I commanded you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. Then answered I and said, So be it, O Lord. Then the Lord said unto to me, Proclaim all these words unto the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear you the words of the covenant and do them. For I earnestly protested to you, unto your fathers in that day that I brought them out, out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ears, but walked every man in, in, in the imagination of their own evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I have commanded them to do, but they did not do them. So we're going to stop that for just a moment. So the word comes to Jeremiah, and he says, give this message to the people. And this is kind of an interesting message. He says, hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. When he first starts out, it's like he's making a new covenant with them. But he's going to refer back to the original covenant of the land. And it says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that, obe that obeys not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them up, to bring them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do them according to all that I have commanded you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God. This was what God told the people when they were at Mount Sinai. He says, here are the rules you need to, that you're going to obey them. And if you remember, what did the people say? We will keep all of your rules. Now, that was quite bold in their statements, but, but they really kind of meant it at that time, at least they, in their mindset they thought. And how many times do we do that to God? God, you say do this. I've got it. you got it, God. I'm going to obey you until we're going to do a little bit, of, uh, little bit of fire, a little bit of trials. And uh, God, this doesn't make sense. I don't want to do it anymore. And that's exactly what the people did. God, we will obey. They did the same thing in Deuteronomy. Uh, in Deuteronomy 27, God said, if you break all these rules, and he, he spends the entire chapter going, don't do this, 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 don't do this. And if you do them, I will bring curses upon you. And he said, before that, if you do all these things, I will bring blessings upon you. This is the covenant that the Jewish people had when they, God was bringing them into the promised land. Be obedient and be blessed. Be disobedient and be cursed. Now, the land was theirs. God told Abraham that the land was their land without condition. But God said, for you, when you go into it, if you don't obey, you're going to lose the land. And sure enough, we find out several hundred years later, they lose the land. 
All right, about 400 years under the prophets and then under the, um, excuse me, judges, and then another 800 or so years under the kings, and they were disobedient after disobedient after disobedient, and God judges them and sends them into captivity. The northern kingdom into Assyria, the southern kingdom into Babylon. And when the southern kingdom went into Babylon, they spent 70 years in captivity. And God sent them back for their second try <laughs> to obey God. Huh? Jewish people, Jewish people were sent back. back under <clears throat> No, they went back to Israel. Back to Jerusalem under Jeremiah, under, excuse me, Ezra and Nehemiah. And they rebuilt the temple, and they got to stay there for approximately seven, eight hundred years until they were disobedient again and had uh, killed the Messiah, which was what God knew that was going to happen. And then Rome came in and destroyed them again and sent them all around the world. And then they stayed around the world for 1948 years until they went back to the nation of Israel, which they are there today again. So Israel has been a nation that keeps getting kicked out of their land and brought back to their land. Why? Because God says it is your land. I promised it to you through Abraham. And we're going to see one more time that they're basically going to get kicked out of the land during the tribulation period when they rebel against the Antichrist. They're going to be chased out of Jerusalem and they're going to go hide in the wilderness. And then finally during the reign of Jesus Christ for a thousand years, they will have the land that they wanted and it will be theirs until the final judgment. So this is, this is the story of Israel. Disobedient, disobedient, but God says, this is your land. I promised it to Abraham. And the promise to Abraham was unconditional promise. And even to this day, when nations go against Israel, there's consequences for going against Israel. Now, it doesn't mean Israel is good or even perfect. Matter of fact, they're pretty bad right now. But when nations go against them, bad things happen to the nations. And there's all kinds of people who have mapped out all the bad decisions against Israel and watched, watched what has happened to the nations that have made those decisions against them, including America. Those times when we've made decisions, we've watched our economy crash, we've watched problems happen in America every time that we have made moves against Israel. And when we support Israel, we get blessed. All right? This was the unconditional covenant that, Jesus, that God made with Abraham. You will, those who curse you will be cursed. Those who bless you will be blessed. And the land is your land forever. And then later on, he told David, you will have a king that sits on the throne of Israel forever. Jesus was the son of David that sits on the throne and he is the king that will reign forever in the seat of David. So all these promises God made and he says this is what is going to happen. But when Moses brings the people of Israel into the land, he goes, you need to obey the laws of God or else you will be cursed. And right before they came in, there's a, there's a scripture where there's in a valley between two big mountains and are on the one side saying that you're going to be blessed and the other side going to be cursed because that is exactly what God knew was going to happen. He knew his people were going to be disobedient and knew that they would be kicked out of the land on several occasions but knew that the land was theirs. And this is the whole problem in the Middle East. 
The land belongs to Israel because God says so. Now, other people have conquered it and lived in there and possessed it, but it still belongs to Israel by God's divine statement. And even today, it's their land. It's their land because God promised it to them. Now, most of the nations don't recognize that God promised them the land, but the Jewish people are kind of interesting. Most of them are agnostic or atheist, but if you ask them about the land, they will say it's the land that God gave them. Even though they don't believe in God, God gave them the land. They're very strange people at times uh, because they understand their heritage is that that is their land given to them by God when the, the people came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And even though they don't fully believe in God, they still have it's so ingrained into them that this is the land that God gave them that they use the term, God gave us this land. All right, Kind of like many Americans who don't really believe in God when they celebrate Christmas and Easter. They know what it's about, the resurrection of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. Don't necessarily believe in him or anything, but they know what those events are and celebrate those events as they, as they are because they've become almost cultural. And they don't even think about what they are celebrating. They just celebrate the event. Now, this is sometime when some baby was born of a virgin and, a, and these wise men came and the shepherds came and changed the world. Oh, this is when, you know, the resurrection of, of Jesus happened. Don't believe in resurrections. Don't believe in Jesus. Don't believe in God. But I'm going to celebrate uh, Easter. And we see it all the time in people. And it's really bothering me sometimes when you watch people who don't believe in God and yet they celebrate these holidays and I'm going, I thought you didn't believe in God. Well, I don't. Then why are you celebrating a holiday about God? Uh, I don't know. And this is the funny thing. People do not think about what they believe in in our day and age. Uh, and even for Christians, how many times do Christians just not think? Uh, and I've been in churches where people have believed something. They go, well, that's what the Bible says. Well, do you believe it? Well, I'm not sure. It doesn't sound right, but the Bible says it, so I'm going to believe it. Okay, which do you believe? Do you believe what you think you believe or do you believe what the Bible says? And we have many Christians who just automatically don't think. And I've seen it over and over again. When I challenge them, well, I just, I was told to just believe it, so I believe it. Well, I'm glad you could just believe it because you were told to believe it. I have to know why. I have to know that it makes sense. And this is what I've done over the last 50 plus years studying the Bible I look for how it makes sense with reality. And the good news is, it does. All right? It matches reality. And I believe it literally. God said he created the world in six, six days and rested on the seventh. And he created all things during that period of time. So what does that mean to me? The earth is nowhere near as old as science tries to say it is. Talking about all of the, like, the, how the rock formations and this and that. I'm just and it doesn't even match science, but they say it as if it does. You know, they'll show you this geological column and show you how it's supposed to match. Nowhere in nature do you see the geological column the way it's shown on, on paper, because it doesn't exist. It does not exist, and yet they will tell you and say, this is fact, it is like this. And it's very funny when you go and you you start looking at all the different types of science and you bring them all together and find out where they all disagree with each other. 
and they all quote the other one as their source for truth, and the other one quotes them. You know, how, do you, how do you date the age of the rock by the fossils in it? How do you date the fossils by what rock it's in? You know, so it's like, okay, which one's which? Yes. Okay, I can't, I can't have roundabout logic to be able to prove this stuff. We can't. We can't. They're guessing on what fits their preconceived ideas. The sun is a young star. So young that people say that it's no more than 15,000 years old. To helium mix in the sun. They go, there's no way it's more than about 15,000 years old. Uh, we look at the salt level in the sea. There's no way it's millions of years old. The moon is moving away from us at a constant rate, which puts it right, if it was millions of years old, it was rolling along the earth when it first started. Not happening. So everything that we know for science says young earth. Everything that they speculate about is about old earth and they can't prove it without trying to make other science speculations be their, be their uh, statement. So it's kind of fun to watch this. And the problem they get around is most people don't know multiple sciences very well, and they just believe whatever they're told in their particular science and don't realize that it contradicts other science statements. I think they each science has more zeros to it. Well, they have to. They have to, and part of it is if you're being funded for finding something, you can't find something that is already younger than anything else. You have to find something that's older than anything else that's existed. Otherwise, you're not justifying your, your archaeological dig. So you can't find something that is dated the same date as somebody else. You have to find something that was earlier than all the other stuff because now I've got the earliest one. Give me more money so I can dig up more. And it is a really sad statement. They believe it and people believe that scientists are these pure academic that they don't let their emotions sway them. It's not true. They are human beings. They have their own preconceived ideas that go into their logic. How did most of the science get developed in the first place? The early, early scientists of the outside the dark ages, looked at the Bible, saw what the Bible said, and then went to find what the Bible said. They found the, path, the ocean currents because the Bible talked about the paths of the sea. They found the idea of the water hydraulic cycle because the, Job says the waters fall down, go to the sea, and go back up to the air again, and, and the oceans don't get full. And they're going, I wonder if this is true. And what did they find out? Exactly what the Bible said. The Bible speaks of the uh, earth hanging on nothing. Contrary to all the different fables and everything where it sits on top of turtles and, and, and elephants and pillars and all this stuff and being flat, the Bible never says any of that stuff. And yet we're accused of believing that kind of stuff. You know, going, it's not in the Bible, guys. It talks about the nitrogen cycle, that things die, feed the earth, and then go back in to feed the animals again. All these things that the Bible talks about that we discovered in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. Why? Because people took the Bible and said, 
if it's true, this stuff should be out there. And went out and found what the Bible talks about. And it's kind of interesting that most of the early scientists that we know, most of them wrote, wrote more theology books than they did science books. Now, we don't have most of their theology books anymore. They've gone out of print. What's the difference between theology and science? Study of God. Oh. Doctrine, doctrine in the Bible. So they wrote books about God and the Bible more than they did about their science because everything was based upon knowledge of God. Now what's wrong with our science today? It's all based on man's opinions rather than facts and we're getting further and further afield from truth. Now that doesn't mean new things aren't being developed and technologies but we are being limited by our misunderstanding of truth. When we look at things and say, well, God says that all men are created and fallen and are basically evil, what does psychologists and, and sociologists say? No, men are basically good. If we can just give them the right environment, they'll be good. All right? Well, we're just evolved animals. Therefore, there's no special value in human life because so we can just you know, kill off old people and, and babies because there's nothing special about them. Eventually they'll evolve and they'll be the next higher generation and they'll make the other parts go extinct. And that's how they think. But we go to God and say, God says man is special. He's created in the image of God. And all of these things that God says, listen to my word. Obey my word. And when we shift away from God, we do crazy, evil things. People, people right now, and we have it going on right now, you know, we got to get rid of guns because guns are the problem. No, the people with the guns that are evil are the problem. And because you believe that people are good, you're going to say the guns are the problem. All because of the teaching that they have. Now, people with guns are a problem sometimes. But so are people with knives and bows and arrows and slings and, and chemicals and anything else, you know. Evil people will do evil things. And the sad thing is, everyone has a propensity to evil. Because Jeremiah, later on in this book, is going to tell us that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And this is important for us to understand. And I've said this over and over again. I am never surprised when sinners sin. Doesn't surprise me. What else are sinners going to do? Sinners aren't going to be good. They are going to sin. Now, granted, as Christians, we have God in us, and we shouldn't be sinning as much. And I'm a little more disappointed when Christians sin and when I sin, but I'm still not surprised because I still have a sin nature. Even though God is indwelling me, I still have a sin nature. Paul said, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I wanted, that I want to do. Oh, wretched man is... Uh, that I am and he goes what what can deliver me from this body of sin only God and turning to him Jeremiah here is telling the people follow God be obedient and you've got to put ourselves into this place because during the time that Jeremiah is preaching the people are prosperous everything is going good they're looking at Jeremiah and saying, you're telling us all these bad things are going to happen to us. Look at all the fields. Are, the fields are full of corn. The, the businesses are all doing good. We've got money coming out of our ears. We've got crops coming out of ears. We've got all these gods that we, that we worship, and they're, 
and they're blessing us and you're telling us that God is going to judge us. This is the problem that all the prophets had. God would tell them to speak while everything was going good in the nation. And people were going, what's wrong with you guys? Look at everything going on. I kind of think about our country. What's going on? Look at all the prosperity that we have. And now all of a sudden we're looking at judgment if we don't repent. We're already in judgment. The economy's falling apart around us. We're headed toward recession. We're looking at possibility of wars going on around us. We're watching weather that's being devastating to this country. And what does man want to say? Well, global warming. Uh, not global warming now. What is it? Climate change is the new term for it. Uh, because they don't know what to do because sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's wet, sometimes it's dry, sometimes it's, you know, but it's now in extremes. So it's global, it's climate change, not global warming. And this is a judgment from God. It's exactly what he's done all through the scriptures. And we need to be able to see it for what it is. This is God's judgment starting to fall. And if this country does not repent, we'll have just what happened to Israel and every other nation that, that fell under God's judgment. They lost their nation. And our nation is darn close to being lost. If we do not repent and turn to God, this nation is going to be history. And unfortunately, historically, it's about the right time for it to fall. 300 to 400 years per nation is about what history says they have. And we're there. We are committing every sin under the, under, under the God says a sin. We're not following after it. We're following idols and, you know, not created gold and silver idols, but we're following idols. We're doing everything that we think is right. And we see it all the time with every decision, every government decision saying, this sin is now acceptable. This sin is now acceptable. This sin is now acceptable. And by the way, all you Christians who disagree, tough. You, we don't care what you think. Well, you know what? It's not us Christians that are making the statement. It is God who makes the statement. And we can't change what God says. God calls certain activities sin, and we need to call them sin. doesn't mean judge people and criticize them, but it does mean it is sin. God does not accept it. And that has to be what is, and this is what Jeremiah is calling the people to say. What did God say? He said, follow what God said. In Deuteronomy, I just want to read Deuteronomy real quick because it's kind of very negative, but we're going to read it anyway on the curse side of it. Deuteronomy 27, starting at verse oh, 14. And the Levites shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that makes any graven and molten image an abomination to the Lord to work of the hands of the craftsmen and puts it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be he that sets light by his father and his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that removes his neighbor's landmark or his boundary markers, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that makes the blind to wander or out of the way, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that perverts the judgment of the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lies with his father's wife, because he uncovers his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, uh, Amen. Cursed be he that lies with any manner of beast, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lies with his sister, the daughter of his father, or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that smites his neighbor secretly, and all the people shall say, Amen. 
Cursed be he that takes the reward to slay the innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that affirms not all the words of this law to them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Pretty strong stuff. And when you look at this list, how many of these things are being done in America and being accepted in America? Not all of them yet, but most of them have been, and many of them are right on the verge of being accepted. And we're looking at this place that is critical. Israel was judged because they did not obey what they said, amen, and amen means so be it, or let it be so. So God was saying, the Levites are going to call this out, and you're going to say, let it be so. So they were basically cursing themselves. All right? They said, this is going to be a curse. Amen, let it be so. When we, when we break this, we're going to be cursed. And I think they meant it at the time they said it. They planned on obeying these, these rules and these laws, but it didn't stand for them. And all through their history, they violated these laws and these rules. And this is what was going on. Jeremiah is saying, you've got to perform what, I have, what you have sworn to do. You must be obedient. And they said, so be it. Then it says, proclaim, and it says the Lord unto me, proclaim these words unto the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, saying, hear you the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in that day that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now this word for protest means testify, proclaim, exhort. So God isn't saying, I'm just arguing with you, I'm, I'm picketing you. He says, I'm encouraging you to be obedient. All right, so this word is kind of a little, not very clear. But I'm exhorting you to be obedient. We need more churches, more Christians exhorting this country to repentance and obedience to God. I am very concerned for this country. Countries fall quickly when these things happen. And we're looking at our, our country's fall imminent if this doesn't have repentance. And I would hate to see our country fall, but you know what? My strength is not in this country. My strength and my hope is in God. No matter what happens to this country, God is still in charge. And this is something we have to understand. I know so many Christians who are very, very upset when Trump lost the election. Not that Trump was our savior, but he was being doing good things. But you know what? This country got what this country deserves for its misdeeds and for its sin. And we're seeing all of this happen. And who's going to follow Biden if we don't repent? I hate to think about who's going to follow Biden if we don't repent. Because this is a serious issue. Nobody gets elected in this country without God's approval. We're approving homosexuality. We're approving transgenderism. The next thing will be bestiality and all the other various uh, sexual sins beyond there, pedophilia and, and uh, poly, uh, polygamy and all these things that will be following in real soon. Because once you disconnect from the truth of God and a standard, where do you draw the line? You can't. If this is okay, then you cannot say that something else is not okay without having a standard that says this is what marriage is about. And as soon as they broke that standard, they have nothing to stand on. 
And this is, and you heard it right from the beginning. You, you may not have heard this, but I was listening to people talking about they wanted to marry their dogs, their cats, their horses, their children, marry more than one, one person. Uh, all the stuff that God forbids immediately was being talked about. Well, if homosexuality is okay and we're going to break this marriage idea, then we can do whatever we want. And we're going to start seeing just that happen. We're going to watch the courts start making decisions on this. And what can they say? If there's no standard that they have to build it upon, they must approve all that sin. And that's sad. It's sad to think that that's where we're going to go. And watch what's happening. Watch what happens in our country. In history, homosexuality was the breaking point of every nation. Every great nation went into homosexuality and very quickly went into transgenderism and, and every other perver perversion and then fell. This is what our country is looking at if we don't repent. And people go, well, how can you say that? Well, because I read my Bible. I know history. And it's true that every nation has had that happen. And in the Bible, we see it happen over and over and over again. And it is the tipping point. The acceptance of, of homosexuality by the nation is the tipping point that drives them over the edge. Because once you cut off a standard, there is no standard to, to hold on to. And sin will get more and more rampant. And then God will have to judge our nation. Now, I think that's a great thing because it moves us into the end times, but I'm not sure that I want to live in it, but it's still a good thing. But the really good news is God is still in charge. No matter what happens, God is in charge. We may suffer. We may go through trials. We may be arrested. We may be martyred. But God is still in charge. And this is something for us to be very much aware of. Do we believe that God is in control of all things? If we do, then it doesn't matter what happens to this country. Really doesn't matter what he allows to happen to us because God is still in charge. And we see it all through the scriptures. And my favorite example is Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery at age 17. Spends 13 years as a slave and as a prisoner. And then finally gets exalted. How many of us would endure 13 years of hardship without complaint? David seemed to do it the whole time. Let's look at Daniel. Daniel gets put into Babylon as a young teenager. Stands for God and spends his entire life basically as a, as a slave, even though he gets to be in charge of the wise men, he's still just a slave and never goes back home to Jerusalem. He serves Nebuchadnezzar, and then he, Belshazzar, and then he serves Darius, and then he serves Cyrus. And as far as we know, he died in a foreign country. Yes, he had leadership skills, but he was still a slave. He was conquered. He was taken away. How many of us would have wanted to spend our entire 60 to 70 years of life in that in that condition huh longer um at by the time he was alive 80 was a pretty long life by the time he was uh, but still it's a long life
It's hard to understand why they were better, better at doing what they did than most people. But there was something about them. There was something about them and their call. They definitely had a submitted spirit to God. But no more than we can have. All right? And this is what we're told in the scriptures. All these great men are no better than us because we have the same God in us. So if we decide to obey God, we will see the same miraculous things. Elijah said, no rain. And it didn't rain. And what's it tell us in the New Testament? We can do the same thing if we really, truly were called and believe, because we have the same God in us. Now, I have never had God tell me to say no rain, but you know what? As bad as our country is getting, as bad as this world is getting, it won't surprise me if somebody comes up one day and says no rain or, no, or, or storms or whatever it might be, because God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. So when we read the scriptures, we can see what God is going to do. He brings judgment after a period of time on, on his people. He gives them a lot of leeway. He gives them a lot of grace. He gives them a lot of mercy. But there's a time when he says, no more. And judgment falls. Have we entered that place in America? I don't think we're quite there yet. But we are awfully close to the place where God says, don't, don't pray for this country anymore. It's over. And we're going to see in here where he's told not to pray for Jerusalem, not to pray for Israel because of their disobedience. God says, I'm done with them. They're going to be punished. And we see this all through the different prophets telling, God says, quit praying for the people. They've had their chance to repent. They have not. They're going to go into judgment. There is a place where God says judgment is going to come. Now, God always has a remnant of believers. And the problem is the judgment falls on the remnant as well. Even though God is in charge and the remnant says, I trust God and I'm going to believe in God, I'm going to follow God. But the trials fall on the remnant. And then the remnant gets to stand up for God and say, we still believe in God. They get to be a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the middle of a plane with thousands of people all around them standing in the middle of the plane not not bowing down and being a witness for God knowing that it might cost them their life matter of fact knowing that it probably would cost them their life because that's what they told Nebuchadnezzar our God's able to deliver us but whether he does or doesn't we're still going to follow him it, you know you can go ahead and put us in that fire it's, it's your prerogative but we're going to follow God is that our attitude? God, I don't care what you let come my way. I'm going to serve you. That's a hard decision. Now, we may say, yes, I'm going to do that. But as soon as we say yes, God sends little tests our way to say, oh, do you really mean this? Are you really going to serve me when I bring the test to you? Joseph managed to get through the test. And then when that one wasn't bad, he was tempted to, to uh, sleep with Potiphar's wife. And when that didn't work, he was accused of, of raping her and he got put into prison. And he still, even after all of these things, did not turn away from God. He was in control of everything Potiphar owned. Can you imagine? Potiphar was a wealthy man. 
how easy would it have been for him to say, well, let me just start siphoning off some of Potiphar's wealth to my own, to my own uh, pockets. He'll never know that it's missing. You know, we don't know all the temptations he went through. But I'm sure he had lots of temptations. Not just the ones we were told. And yet he honored God. Daniel honored God. Would not eat the, fruit, uh, the food offered to him by the king. And we don't know why exactly he said no. Was it un- unclean, offered to idols? We don't know all of the reasons why. But he would not eat that food. And he was raised up by God because of his obedience. We need to be ready to stand. And I know there's been a constant thought on, my, on me for the last few months. I really believe we are close to the end days. And if we are not ready mentally and spiritually, we are going to fall flat on our face when the trials come. Because the, the time when the trials come is not the time to decide what am I going to do. We have to decide, I'm going to obey you, God, no matter what, long before it happens. Because the world will keep coming at us with attacks. And we're going to see it more and more. And we're going to continue to see it more and more. Our church, like myself specifically, I speak out against abortion, against uh, homosexuality, against transgenderism. There's going to be people who don't like that. There are going to be people that are going to come after me and this church because of the stance that I take that is biblical. Now, granted, we're in chloride, so it may not happen very time soon. But by the same token, we're in chloride. There's no police here. It would be easy to do something here and get away with it because it's in the middle of nowhere. Granted, it's a small church, it's a small, small town, and that's good, and yet it's bad. Are we ready for the trials that are going to come our way? We need to be. Because it's going to get really hard at points in time to take a stand. To say, we're going to believe in God no matter what. When people come to this town to picket us because we don't believe what they believe. And you're going to go, well, do we really want this kind of attention? No, I don't want that kind of attention, but I still have to stand for God. It is quite possible that we'll all die before the end days. It's quite possible that tomorrow could be the end days. This is how fast the things are out there. Our world is on the edge to go over. We are close to one world government. We are close to just having one more big issue to say we need to put everybody under one government and under control. And you Christians, you guys are troublemakers. You're, you're really in trouble. It won't be long, especially those of us who believe the Bible. Those who really believe the Bible, there are very few of them, even in, the, even in Christian churches, there's very few of them that actually believe the Bible. And when these trials come, most of them will fold like a house of cards because they don't believe the Bible anyway. And they're just Christians in name. From what a lot of Christian churches say, well, we don't really believe the Bible. We kind of believe whatever we're told and whatever, whatever is, whatever wind, whichever way the wind is blowing. They're not Christians. They're not Christians, they're not following God. And yet they name the name of Christ. And they're the ones that are making life difficult for those of us who want to believe the Bible and teach the Bible because people will point, well, what's wrong with, those Christians have no problem with this. What's wrong with you guys? You guys are out of date, old fashioned, you know, left behind, haven't involved. 
And we're going to hear a lot of that, and you're going to hear a lot more of it as time comes in, because I hear it. I hear it frequently. You can't believe the Bible. You know, nobody, no, Christians don't believe the Bible. Christians don't believe in sin. We have all these problems going in, and our world is set up for the fall, for the fall to the Antichrist. And it's very interesting because it tells us that it will be like the days of Noah where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I don't know how much further we have to go, but it sure seems to me that everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. But it's told to us over and over. People are going to do what's right in their own eyes, just like the days of Noah. And you're going, okay. Everybody in the days of Noah did what was right in their own eyes. And what did God do? He just killed everybody but eight people. I don't know, you all probably don't visit as many churches as I have visited over 52 years, but there's been a lot of churches I've gone to and gone, oh, that this is not a Christian church. It said Christian on the door, but get out as fast as possible because they don't believe the Bible, they don't teach the Bible, they don't do anything with the Bible. And yet they are very large with big attendances on there because they're tickling people's ears and telling them what they want to hear, which is exactly what Paul said. In the latter days, people would be going around with itchy ears, wanting to hear what they wanted to hear. They don't want to hear that it's their sin. They don't want to hear that there's judgment. They don't want to hear that the blood of Jesus Christ is necessary to get into heaven. And all of these things that go on are so important for us. And this is what separates Christians from the rest of the world. Do we truly believe God's word? Even the parts we don't like. And I can tell you right now, there are parts of the Bible that I'm not exactly thrilled about sometimes when I read. I'm going, God, this sounds a lot like me. I have a problem here. Can I, can I maybe not believe this part? And I don't go quite that far, but you know, my, my flesh is going, ah, we don't want to believe that part. We don't, want to, we don't want to accept that part. But every word of Scripture has to be believed. And I've said this over and over. If there is any part of this book that is not true, it's a worthless book. It really is. It's a worthless book. If it is not 100% true, it's worthless because how am I going to decide what is right and what is wrong if any part of it's wrong? It has to be true. I have to accept that it is true. Whether I agree with it or not at the moment, I still have to agree with that it is true. And that it means that I have to change my lifestyle to match what God says I'm supposed to be doing. Now, are we ever going to absolutely 100% match this book? I wish we could, <laughs> but we're not going to. We're not going to match this book, and we're always going to find things going, God, and I've, and I've told you, I've, I tease God several times when I'm going through the Bible, reading through, and going, God, when did you put that verse in there? I've never seen that verse before. Now, I know darn well that that verse has always been in my Bible. <laughs> no question in my mind that every verse in that Bible has been in there. But there are certain times when a Bible verse will jump out at me because of where I'm at, the awareness that the Holy Spirit is putting me through and saying, pay attention to this verse. You've ignored it now for 52 years. Now it's time to pay attention to it. I don't care how long you've been walking with God. I've been 52 years and I'm still struggling with this, this idea of following God wholeheartedly and completely. And yes, I'm farther along than most people that I know, but you know what? I'm still not there. And I don't think I'm ever going to be there. And the people that I've known that are 80, 90 years old that have been following God most of, most if not all of their life, they're not there either. And they'll usually be the first one to admit it as well. I'm not there. 
I still have areas that I need to work in. Because if we got there, I think we'd end up in heaven. We'd be Enoch and say, okay, God says, okay, you're, you're, you're so close to me, let's go to heaven and take you right away. It would be nice. It wouldn't hurt my feelings for that to happen. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because I'm fully aware of how far away I am of what God wants. But here we have Jeremiah telling the people, you needed to obey. God says he's proclaimed this to you. Unto your fathers I proclaimed it. I, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, even to this day, rising early and proclaiming, saying, obey my voice. Over and over again, God says, obey my voice. And he says it even to this day. Obey my voice. And we live in a time when people are going, well, we're under grace, God. We don't have to follow all these rules and these regulations. And God says, yeah, but it's my grace that's not keeping you destroyed. Grace does not give us the license to sin. It gives us the benefits of blessing even when we sin. And this is the problem. And we're not sinning just so we can get more grace. Paul said that. Should grace, you know, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And he said, so he goes, should you therefore sin so that grace will abound? He said, God forbid. All right? Because we all sin often enough that grace is going to abound whether we try to sin or not. We all have trouble with sin. Many times we do use grace as a license to sin. I can do whatever I want because I'm under grace. And that's a dangerous attitude. If you can really sin that way and think that way, you have to think twice about, are you even saved? If I can just purposely go out and sin because I want to sin and not feel conviction and a problem with it, I have to seriously look at my life and say, am I truly God's child? Is the Holy Spirit living in me to convict me of my sin? And only, it's only between you and God. I can't judge that. I can't judge that, but I'm really serious when I say that. You know, and I don't want people to judge themselves and feel guilty. If you have trouble with sin, you're okay. All right? If you, if you sin and you know that you're sinning and you know that you have a problem with sin, you're okay with God because the Holy Spirit is convicting you. If you can go out and you can sin a lot and go, oh, it's not a big deal, no problem, you've got a problem. You've got a problem between you and God if you can just go out and sin without, without even being worried about it. There's no way I can sin and not worry about it. Usually God is screaming in my ear when I'm sinning. And if not, he's yelling in my ear right after I sin. You should not have done that. He's usually long before I get there. He's yelling at me, trying to get me not to sin. And I can tell you there's times when I've gone ahead and sinned anyway, even knowing that I was doing what I was doing was wrong. And, and you know, you feel so bad. You can't even enjoy sin when you know you're doing it wrong. That's you know. It is good. Yeah. You know, it's one thing when you fall into sin because you have that moment that you enjoyed what you were doing. And then God comes in and convicts you. But there's those times when you know you're doing wrong and you know that you shouldn't be doing it and you still do it. And you're, feel, and you're not even feeling bad after. You're feeling bad while doing it. That's good. <laughs> I can't remember what you read there in verse 4. which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt and from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do them 
according to all which I have commanded you, so you shall say to the people, and I will, and I will be your God. Their their ten, their trials and, and tribulation as slaves. Iron. It's called iron. It's called the furnace or the iron or the or the trials. Their their slavery. Their slavery. Their time of slavery and, and tribulation. Oh, so they're not up. No, they weren't literally burning up. Well, they were refining. They were making bricks. But it was. How many times do we feel like we're how, them being refined? Supposedly, they never did, but. God refines us all the time and says, I am putting you in the fire. I want you to be perfected. And this is what happens to us. When we turn our life over to God, he allows trials and tribulation and hard times to come in to get rid of all the garbage out of us and refine and scrape away all the garbage and all and keep scraping it away. And then when he gets done with that one, he turns the heat up. To get rid of more garbage. It's different metals melt at different temperatures. Yeah. And you have to go through all of those temperatures to purify all the garbage out of the gold and silver. So you start out when you just get it liquid and the, and the hardest, hardest stuff comes up, you skim it off. You warm it up, you skim off more chemicals. You warm it up, skim off more chemicals. God's doing that to us. He's refining us. He's proving us. And he puts us through the fire. And we don't like the fire usually. It hurts. It hurts to be heated up. It hurts to have him drag his scraper across the top of our life, getting rid of all the evil in our life. And then he turns the fire up and says, there's, few more, there's a little bit more down there. And there's a little bit more down there. And a little bit more down there. And he turns the heat up and he turns the heat up. And when we read Jeremiah, it says, our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And he goes... Uh, I'll keep going. I'm going to keep turning the heat up. And I'm going to keep taking away all this evil. Paul, at the end of his life, said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Because he was starting to really understand how evil his heart was. I am understanding this more and more as I live. Because there was a time in my life, I, I was pretty proud and arrogant. You know, I, I, I've got my life all put together. I don't, I don't do all these sins. Oh, God got hold of me something fierce for a while. And he just kept turning up the heat saying, okay, let's show you all the sins that you, you're capable of. And now that I'm getting much older, even though I'm not old yet, <laughs> he is showing me how really evil my heart is. And I look in and say, God, there are so much evil thoughts in me. So many things that I would do if given a chance. If I thought I could get away with it, I'd probably do it. But I know you're watching, so I'm, I'm going to try to be obedient. But my desire is not to be obedient. Why? Because we have a wicked heart. The good news is the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and he keeps that wickedness in check. But we would be willing to do wrong if given the opportunity. Given the opportunity not to listen to the Holy Spirit, we would be ready to charge out and do wicked. Look around us. All the wickedness and evil that's going on because people are being told you're basically good, you shouldn't have any of these rules upon you, and then what do we see? People acting like vicious animals against one another and against things. And then people are surprised. How in the world could people do this? Because they somehow truly believe that people are basically good. Now I don't know what people they're looking at. 
because I've never even seen a baby or a child that's basically good. Babies are selfish. They want what they want, when they want, why they want it. You, you get around two years old, you want everything. You know, everything is yours. Doesn't matter whether it's yours or not, it's yours. Doesn't matter whether you were playing with it or not, it's yours. And nobody else can play with it. And, and we look at this and going, those are our innocents. Those are the ones that are supposed to be really pure, that haven't been taught to be evil. And they go nothing but get worse if they're not trained up. This is why God said, train up your children. Discipline them. We teach our children to not be selfish or as selfish as they were when they're two years old. We teach them to share. We teach them how to behave in a civilized environment. And without that training, they will be monsters to the world. You know, that's weird because before I never thought of it that way. I just thought that just being that is so true on how I think all babies here, they don't know. They're pure, they're innocent, they're 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 good. If they if they were to die, they're they're perfect and go straight to heaven because they're perfect. No. <laughs> now they probably will go to heaven because they haven't had an opportunity to make a choice for God. But I can't make a case biblically for that other than the fact that God is just. And if they don't get to an age where they can consciously make a decision for God or against God, I believe that God will be just. But that's hard to prove in the scriptures. The only scripture that tells us this is when David was told that his first son with Bathsheba had died. And he said, I got up and he goes, well, what, this is strange. You were, he goes, I can't go to, he can't come to me. I must go to him. And that's the only verse in the whole Bible that indicates that a child automatically goes to heaven. That's hard to make a doctrine on, but at least there's one verse that says say that. I do believe that God is just. If they, now, when that age of accountability is a lot younger than what most people believe, people know right and wrong, <laughs> all right, and have to make a decision. So is it as young, as old as many people want to make it? No. Is it as young, really, really young from birth? No, because that infant does not make a, make a decision. That two-year-old barely can make a decision. Three, four, eh, we're getting to a place where they might be able to make a decision and know, and know that they, they're making decisions. And may it be different in different, different kids, probably, depending on how they're raised, how they're, how they're brought up. Some kids will not know that they're doing evil for a lot longer than others. But inherently, God has put a conscience in us that we know right from wrong at a certain age. And we may sear that conscience so we no longer accept it, but we can all look back and say, there was a time when I knew what I was doing was wrong. The person who takes first drug, their, their first illicit uh, sexual encounter, when they do the first one, they know something's wrong. Now they may keep doing it to the place where they no longer think about that conviction pricking them, but that first time they know that something's wrong with what they're doing. And this is where God says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I have had a problem polluting my body in another way. It's very obvious that I like to eat. And I overeat quite frequently. Gluttony is a sin, and gluttony actually is claimed to be a sin. So I don't even have the excuse that it's not in the Bible to say no, no to. I have trouble with that. I'm getting better over the years, but I still have this great ability to overeat because I enjoy eating. All right? Uh, 
But I know that gluttony is a sin. God says that gluttony is a sin. And it destroys the temple of God. And it destroys health. So we all have to look at these. And there's all kinds of things out there that are, are they sin or not? And what have I said over and over? If God is working on you and you have any doubt in your mind whether you can do something or not, it's sin. Even if everybody else can do it, because they don't have any problem with it, if you have a problem with it, or you have a thought about it being a problem, it's sin. Plain and simple. We have liberty to do anything, but if I'm questioning whether I can do something, I no longer have liberty to do it. And then that makes it, for me, a sin. Now, there are lots of things that are sin no matter what. You know, like I said, gluttony says God calls gluttony a sin. He calls abortion, uh, he calls the murdering of, children, of people a sin. He calls fornication a sin. He calls lying a sin. There are certain things that are very clearly sins. And there's a whole lot of gray area that probably aren't good for us. And if I'm being under any kind of conviction, then I have to say, all right, God, I understand. I can't do this. It's not for me to do. I know some people smoke, no problem. They don't have a problem with it at all, great. I can't smoke for lots of reasons. All right? Plus it's unhealthy. But, uh, but because God has said, no, I can't do it, I can't. It's not even a question. Can I find a verse in there that says, you shall not smoke? No, it doesn't matter to me. God has convicted me that I cannot smoke. And these are all kinds of things in there. What can you do, what can't you do is going to be determined by how you're growing in your relationship with God. And as we grow, we're going to find more and more things that we can't do that other people can do. All right? And this gets really ridiculous sometimes. You're going, God, why, why won't you let me do this? But it's okay for them. And then we're in a very dangerous place. We're not to judge those who have the freedom to do it. And conversely, they're not to condemn us for not being able to do it. Because they might look at us and say, what's wrong with you? Don't you have grace and liberty to be able to do all things? How easy is it for people in the church to start criticizing and condemning one another? Those that have been around for a long time going, I don't understand why, you're allowed, why, why you keep doing those things. They're, they're sin. And the younger Christian's going, hey, I got delivered from everything. I can do whatever I want. Quit judging me. I don't know what your legalistic problem is. We need to be very careful on both directions. Yes, what I go through can appear to be legalistic to other people. I hope that I don't push it on to other people on what I can and can't do. I try very hard not to. But people can look at me and say, well, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? All right? I feel that I can't go out and drink anything, you know, drink an alcoholic beverage. Why does the Bible say I can't? No, the Bible says do everything in, in moderation. I know, number one, I can't because I, get in, I have an addictive personality and I probably like the alcohol too much and get drunk. And God does say don't be drunk. But I also have an obligation as a pastor. Because if somebody looked and said, look, pastor's drinking, it's okay. So I have an obligation as a pastor not to drink. But I also have the obligation to myself not to do something that is going to be a dumb thing for me to do. Because I am very much grown up in a family where I do everything 110%. I don't do things part way. If I'm going to do something, I want to do it. And if I don't do something, I don't worry about it. So I know that if I did drinking, I'd be in trouble. 
Matter of fact, I know from way, way back when my dad was an alcoholic and I tried the drinks, I kind of liked the drinks, the taste of alcohol. And if I hadn't got saved, I would have very much probably been a drunken alcoholic. But God said, no, don't do this. For numbers of reasons, for me. That doesn't mean it for anybody else. And there's numbers of things that are in this area, smoking, gambling, drinking, all of these things fall into it, those areas that what has God told me or you <laughs> that you can and can't do? Now, there are lots of things where it's very clear, black and white, don't do. All right? But there's also so many areas that are that, what the world wants to say, shades of gray. The only problem for us and Christians, we do not live in shades of gray. I can either do it or I can't do it. There is no gray area. If I'm living in the gray area, I shouldn't be doing it. I either can do it or I can't do it. If I have any place where I think it might be a problem, stop. <laughs> Plain and simple. You've lost the liberty to do it if you have any doubt in your mind about whether it's good or not. And then so we don't live in this gray area. And the world will tell us, look, it's all gray. Why? Because they like gray. They like knowing that it was wrong, but it's not so wrong that I can't do it, but I think I can't do it. Or, and, and they live in this gray area where I think it's wrong, but I'm not going to stop doing it because I don't find anything that says not to do it. Understand that we in Christ live in a black and white world. Now, I've been criticized for this black and white belief system I have, but it is true. I can either do it or I can't do it. And if I have any wavering in between, the answer is I can't because I don't have the liberty. Does that mean it's true for everybody? No, you're going to have to live in your section. What has God said that you can and can't do? If, it, if God is working on you and saying you can't do something, stop doing it. If you even are thinking maybe I shouldn't do it, stop doing it. If you're wondering if you should do something or not do something, don't do it because God is working on you to change it because Satan creates lies God says this is what I want you to do and Satan creates a whole bunch of lies and says it's okay it's okay to do these things you're not quite crossing the line you're walking up to the line but you haven't crossed it can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard how close can I get before I've sinned you know, how close can I get before I commit adultery? How close to a lie can I get before I've you know, not told the truth? How close can I do before I've crossed a line? That should not be our question. Our question isn't how close can I get to the line. It should be how far am I going to stay away from the line? Because if I'm playing on the edge of the cliff, I'm going to fall over eventually. I'm going to slip, I'm going to get pushed, the wind gusts, something will push me over that cliff. If I'm way off away from the cliff, I'm not going to fall off the cliff no matter what happens. And too many times I've watched people playing on the cliff and then wondering why they fell off the cliff. And they're going, I don't know how I found myself in this sin. You played around the edges of it and tried it and tried it and tried it and eventually fell off. All right, we're going to stop there. I really didn't talk too much about uh, the Jeremiah scriptures, but 
Lord, we ask you to bless this time as, as we go out. Lord, teach us to follow you. Teach us to be obedient to liberty. And when you teach us that we can't do something, even in the smallest ways, teach us to be obedient, to obey your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.